Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Andrew Goldstein. I'm pleased to share a panel discussion from the 2022 Chief Medical Officer Summit 360, led by Dr. Sheila Kalori, Global Head of Clinical and Real-World Evidence Statistics for Specialty R&D with Teva Pharmaceuticals, on the topic of what statisticians wish they could tell their CMOs. Dr. Kalori was joined by Marsha Levenstein, Senior Advisor with Vivli, Dr. Natasha Mulliman of Cytel, and Dr. Jeffrey Bornstein, CMO of Eladon Pharmaceuticals. Enjoy the podcast. Briefly, I'm um, Sheila Kaluri. I, I started my career at Pfizer. I spent about 17 years there in all phases of drug development um, and increasing levels of responsibility. I then went, to, I was at Takeda for some time as a therapeutic area head for statistics for GI. Um, so got exposed to the frenetic pace of Cambridge. Uh, it, it's not, Takeda is not a biotech, but it certainly had that vibe about it. So very, very, you couldn't pick two companies more different like Pfizer and Takeda. And now I am the head of statistics at, uh, and programming at Teva Pharmaceuticals. I like to teach. I also was teaching at Columbia for about close to a decade. So that's about me. And I'll... Hello, I'm Marsha Levenstein. I was the um, I was a statistician at Pfizer for over 30 years and did a lot of work in global medical affairs in terms of supporting medical products that are already on the market. And then did work in um, development and oversaw some clinical operations departments. So, in addition to statistics, I have experience overseeing programming, data management, contracting, outsourcing, some clinical study um, managers. And so, I have a very broad set of experiences there. I retired a few years ago, and I now work with Vivli, which is a company that's interested in promoting and supporting, providing a platform and process support for sharing individual patient data from clinical trials. Hello. Hello, I'm Natasha Mulliman. I have a medical background, and I came to medical school from the math background, so I stayed very loyal to uh, quantitative science. I have additional education in statistics and data science. So I'm basically on the two chairs, on clinical and the quantitative side. And I work as vice president at the consulting at Cytel, uh, whom you probably know, the company uh, who is a leader in innovative design, which is my passion. I'm based in Switzerland, so I worked out of Switzerland. And I'm also in the jury uh, for the European Commission Innovation Acceleration Fund. Uh, this is one of the most, actually the most ambitious project of European Commission, putting 10 billion aside to support and to invest in the innovative companies across Europe. So as a part of jury, we interview leadership team and then uh, giving go and go decision to the fund. So I have also this uh, investor perspective. Hi, uh, you met me at the last panel. Uh, Chris Morbido is listed in your programs. Chris couldn't be here today, so uh, they drafted me at the last minute to <laughs> fill in. Um, I've worked with Sheila in the past. We were very good about having our you know, disagreements in private and then presenting a united front to the public. We, we haven't had time to align, so I apologize in advance. Um, so thank you. Thank you, everyone. And um, thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I'm so thrilled that the summit actually put a topic like this. I'm really impressed just by that. So I'll start with first um, just, you know, what statisticians wish they could tell their CMOs First of all, about statistics and about how to get the maximum out of your statistician. So I'm going to let my panel speak to it a little bit, and I'll close it out a bit. So Marsha, your thoughts. So um, 
From the perspective of how statisticians and CMOs can work, I think it's important to recognize that every function at, in the development team brings a different view and a different set of expertise. So while the statistician doesn't have the medical expertise and deep understanding that the CMO is providing, and they need to bring it all together, they have a deep understanding of data, in particular understanding what data is needed, what information is needed to meet whatever your goals are, whether it's a clinical development program or a um, de decision about whether or not a study should go forward or a compound should go forward. And so what they bring is the understanding of data and what kinds of studies do you need to do, what kinds of data do you actually need to inform your decision making and move through the de clinical development pathway. And so it's important as a program is getting developed or even as compounds are being selected that the CMO and the statistician work clearly and closely together to um, allow the statistician to produce the data or understand the data, provide the data and help support decision making from um, disease, natural history of diseases for study designs, what a program of study designs would, would need to be to meet the goals of the program and really work closely together to meld those two and bring those two together so that the data that's collected throughout an entire program is the data that's needed to inform the decision making and bring a program to resolution and ultimately get an approval. Natasha? Yeah. Um, so I think I fully agree with what Marcia is saying. I think it's very important to work in a partnership. I see really it's a partnership between statistician and uh, clinician. And I think statistician can help you uh, beyond what we normally traditionally uh, expect because as a CMO, you're on the front line with your CEO, with your CFO, you're in front, of, in front line uh, to investors, and you're the key to communicate clinic, clinical science and the science uh, to non-clinical people. And statistician can do actually a great job to support you to visualize the data. Because I think still we often tend to use like an old-fashioned last century tables and like data presentation. But now there are so many tools, uh, open source specific software which statistician can use to visualize it. And really seeing is believing. When you talk to people especially who are not that much in the details and in the technicalities of clinical development, I think it helps a lot. And I also want to speak for the, I think, important point which Marcia brought up in terms of decision making. Uh, we probably will touch on the later stage and the next uh, side of the panel, but I won't specifically talk about early development. Uh, it's really all about decision making, right? And um, it's not always um, an ideal world. You also have to consider the runway. Sometimes uh, things are delayed. You have certain runway for the company, but you might not get to the right number of patients at certain point, but you need to give a good sign of your invest to your investors that the program is running well. So a lot of things we do in an early stage, uh, including dose selection, is basically a prediction problem. And sometimes if we're using the traditional frequentist method, it doesn't really give us the right answer to the question. Uh, we want to predict, at the end, we want to predict what will be the success of our end stage development. Will my drug work at the end stage? Will I get approval? Which is in the nature prediction problem. But if you look at the frequentist method, again, to me they're really answering uh, correctly, but the answering wrong question. Uh, this is parallel to make, uh, if you think of a criminal court, if I have uh, an evidence and I have someone who is accused of a crime, the question I want to ask and answer I want to get is, what is the probability that this person is actually guilty or innocent? And if you look at the frequency statistics, what it gives you as an answer, 
It gives you the probability of seeing the evidence, assuming that person is innocent. It's not really what you want to get. So in Bayesian framework, it gives you the answer, what is this person, what is the probability of this person is innocent given the data. So you don't have to change the way in design of your study, but you can work with your statistician to give you the interim data and interim analysis and just additional analysis. So you could actually get uh, the, right, the right question, ask the right question. What is the probability of success of my hypothesis? Thanks. Um, so from my perspective, if I send you a synopsis that's all filled in and has a blank and a little sticky note that says, we need you to give us a power calculation and a sample size, we, we've failed. Right? We've missed our opportunity, we've already lost. Um, we, it's a very, very important partner, partnership to partner with your statistician way up front at the, at the clinical development plan generation stage. So we have the target product profile how are we gonna get there? And what are our options? I, it can be incredibly valuable to have a partner by your side who gives you options like, we could do this with less patients if we do it this way. Or if, we, if you really need that you know, exploratory endpoint, here's the consequence of that. Um, and, and it's a partnership that has to begin very early and it has to, has to have open communication that continues throughout, I, I think. If we view it as a checkbox, you fill in this section of the protocol. Thank you. Have a great day. I think we've missed it. Yeah. Thank you. That that's really the the crux of it because it's it's really the most irritating thing to most statisticians when that happens, which is just give me a sample size. It's almost insulting because you you really cannot do it unless you have the full information about the disease, the endpoints, all of those really, you need someone quantitative there working with you. And to put simply, I think at the end of the day, what we are doing with clinical development is an exercise of the scientific method. And the statistician is, you know, plays a key role in implementing and preserving that scientific method. So that you do have to respect, and you, you do want them everywhere. And they're, you know, they, they can be wrong. It's good to give that constant feedback. Um, they can be rigid in their thinking sometimes, but you, you can't just leave them out of the conversation. That would be a disaster for, for, for any clinical uh, development program. Um, in terms of maximizing the value of your statistician, anything specific, CM, uh, you know, as a CMO, Jeff, did you notice that just in terms of the intangibles that you found works well from your perspective? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, a good example we had actually was when you and I worked together. Mm -hmm. And this was in a bigger company and this was, um, we were responsible for multiple programs. Mm -hmm. And um, very similar to what was just presented in the last talk, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the programs for proof of concept were like, we'll declare sex success based on, we'll know it when we see it. We're gonna do um, basically an underpowered phase three trial. It's not gonna meet statistical significance, but we'll, we'll know the data and we'll mm -hmm. be able to make a decision on it. And we had all these programs that were doing, um, we inherited this to our, <laughs> to our, in our defense, um, but we had all these programs that were doing kind of what they wanted. And what we were able to do um, through, um, a very, um, very strong partnership was introduce a rigorous way of um, establishing and assessing for proof of concept and go-no-go no go decisions that was across programs. Mm -hmm. That was incredibly 
heavily statistical in nature. Mm -hmm. So my role in that was quite small. Um, mm -hmm. it, was, it was really mostly yeah. Lula who drove it. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's another thing. It's just like the quantitative decision-making framework. That's where you know your statistician can help you at a clinical development level, at, at, a, at, a, at a clinical development plan level, not even at a study level. You know, you have your whole plan. Where do you have those inflection points? And where do you set up those go-no-go -no -go decisions? And then how do you quantify and know that you're setting the right decision criteria? That's a place definitely that you can make a lot of use of your statistician that goes above and beyond just your, you know, clinical trial sample size calculation. Uh, another thing that is coming up a lot today and it comes up a lot for biotech uh, is um, several of these are going to sound as like standard buzzwords, but we'll break them down: is adaptive designs, complex innovative designs, and Bayesian designs. And then, of course, um, estimates, potentially. I think all of you have heard, heard of that at some point. So um, I'm going to, uh, so Marsha, your take on each one of those. Sorry, so I'll focus um, a little on trying to explain the estimates um, situation. So I know estimates has been a buzzword for probably maybe almost 10 years now, and, and people get confused. They hear the word estimate and think you've said the wrong word or think you're, they've heard the wrong word and you really mean estimate. But it's, it's different. It's a subtle difference, perhaps, but it's a, and it's a meaningful difference, but it's really not, it's not as different as it sounds. So the context for why we've come to needing and requiring estimates is really as a consequence of the FDA view of how missing data have been handled very poorly, we'll say, over many, many years. And they, they commissioned a, a group out of the National Academy of Sciences to look at the situation of data that's been collected and handling of missing data and sensitivity analyses. And really, there's a lot of confusion surrounding all of it, not any consistency. And they wanted to um, be in a better position to actually have a clear what it is that studies are doing. So the the National Academy came up with a report about handling missing data, and they, at that point they said, don't do lest observation carried forward, which you know, you, those of you who have been in the industry for a while know is the, really what everybody was doing for quite a long time. People said, oh, this is the most conservative, we're going to do this, but it doesn't actually turn out to be that, and it's not a particularly good use of, um, of missing data and how you can analyze your data. So the commission came up with a framework to help really drive alignment and clarity about what it is that a goal, what the goals of a study are. So most of the elements of the estimates, and there are five elements, are very familiar to you and things you've always been doing. But what this does is it provides a framework, it provides a way to discuss and make sure that you actually have um, thought through in your study what the population is that you really want, that your study will, that your disease or your treatment actually will be um, treating. And so you have to clearly define what is the population and therefore what is the target population you're going to include in your study to, um, to do the study, to answer the question. Another component is the variable that's measured, that's often thought of as the endpoint. But really what this reflects is at the individual level, what are you going to collect? Are you going to collect um, death? Are you going to overall survival? Are you going to collect um, blood pressure, which is what I did a lot of, or perhaps time to progression, progression-free survival. So what you collect is at an individual level, this information that will help drive the population level endpoint that's gonna be summarized. And that's what you're gonna do your um, 
make your inferences on and do your analysis about. And that could be something like change from baseline or progression-free survival at the population level, perhaps hazard rate or percentage change in some baseline variable. So those are three elements so far. Another is the treatment that you're studying, which is also clear, and people have always been defining, hopefully people have always been well-defining their treatments in their studies, so this should not be new. So those four elements are not new, but they clar clarify the questions and clarify the goals of the study and make it easy to communicate across all members of a team and with other regulators and anybody who's actually looking at your study. So you can say, this is what our study is going to answer, this is the population we're going to answer it in, and the newest element, which is perhaps the most con confusing to people, is recognizing that during the course of a study, a lot of other things might happen. So and those are called intercurrent events. So it may be that people have to go on to rescue medication, but they continue in the study, and you continue to collect data. People may have an adverse event, and they'll drop out of the study, or will stop, or sometimes they'll drop out of the study. Sometimes they'll just stop treatment and continue in the study, or cross over to the other treatment. So there are a lot of things that can happen during the course of a study, and you need, these need to be taken account of in the way you design your study, how you can collect your information, and then particularly how you analyze your information and how you handle missing data. So those are the four, five elements that really will help make it clear to everyone what it is you're trying to do and accomplish in your study. Yeah, I'd like to also to pick on the topic of adaptive design. Uh, I think when we are, especially at the biotech, the first key priority, we don't want to fail, right? So what we want to do is really to de-risk our trial, to de-risk for assumption. We have our best assumption or what we really expect, but then there is also a, a minimal clinically relevant efficacy, which is still gonna give us approval. So normally what we would like is we'd like to power and we'd like to target for what we believe and what we hope to have, but we need to de-risk ourselves for this a minimum threshold which can still get us to the market and get us for FDA. And I think this is where adaptive study come into place because you can make it in a way to optimize your risk profile, your investment, cost, and time to market, especially given that we don't have unlimited financial means, unfortunately. And this is where statistician can be a great partner because uh, it, has, it has to work kind of hand in hand and to help you, statistician really need to understand what are the, all the constraints. So for example, if you take two very popular designs, which FDA, AMA accepts very well, um, group sequential, when you can uh, power for the um, most conservative effect and stop earlier if you see what you really hope to see, or you can power first, you start for what you want to see, and then at interim, you do sample size re-estimation and you go to the minimum acceptable event. First, I think, then tell me, my colleagues, if you disagree, but normally statisticians would say the first approach, group sequential, is statistically more efficient. But then you need to work with statisticians because if you have a constraint, if you have an investor, and the program is very expensive, if you go for sample size, it's a little bit less statistically efficient, but the message you give to the investor is that I put extra money and I put only money to increase my sample size if I fall into promising zone. If I'm not in a promising zone, I stay with my original investment, I don't ask for more money from you. I think this is from, like statistically, we might lose a little bit on efficiency, but it might, it might give you a much better message with your CEO and C4 uh, to your board and to your investor. And when we look at the, the space of adaptive design evolved enormously. Uh, there are different, uh, like there's so many designs now, and also computational power increased. 
if you give your statistician just a little bit of time and uh, they would run a couple of simulations, so you would have quite a limited choice of what you actually can do. Um, now there is a computational uh, platforms and one of the platforms we have called Solara where we can run a million simulations and you work with statistician to define all your range of assumptions, what could go right, what could go wrong, uh, also in terms of recruitment and you also define what is the, the important weight for me in terms of success criteria. How is it important? Certainly risk is very important. But then how it is important to have a time to market? How many months I want to really ensure that I don't, um, I don't go run over my plan timing? And at the same, and, uh, what is my kind of cost constraint? So you can visualize the whole trial design space. And this is now possible. So you sit down with your statistician and your whole interdisciplinary clinical development team and considering also your investment consideration, you look through the whole space and you go and see what, I, what kind of trade-off I'm doing. And I think that is where a statistician can really support you very well if you work in a partnership instead of, um, as Jeff has mentioned, just like fill, fill my sample size. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to add a little bit on the seamless designs because that comes up very, very often. Um, and it, it came up so often that, you know, in Pfizer I asked somebody, you know, who's a known person in the field to give a talk on it at Takeda. I did it myself. And just um, the thing that I fear is always the, the buzzwords, you know, just don't throw it out there and assume that one size fits all. Uh, the devil is in the detail. So when you're thinking about a seamless design, it actually might work quite well in the phase 2A, phase 2B space. But when you're and that's where I think probably the biggest bang for the buck is. But when you're in that phase two to phase three space, that's where you have to stop and think whether you really want it and whether it really works for you. And also understand there's a difference between what's an operationally seamless and what's an inferentially seamless. If you're just stitching the two protocols together to just have the operational advantage, you're getting the site started, you, you don't want to have that break, that's probably, you know, maybe easy to do, but when you're trying to do the inferentially seamless where you actually want to have the statistical benefit where you're using that data from phase two into your phase three, that's where you want to stop and think because when you do that inferentially seamless, you're potentially not going to have that time for that end of phase two interaction with the agency. And maybe you're okay with it. It's just something you want to think about. So, and you also want to think about the fact that this is going to take a little more time to plan. So you want to stop and think, am I really, the big push for seamless is always we want to get rid of that white space between phase two and phase three. So ask yourself, am I eliminating it or have I just shifted it to, you know, before the start of this long trial? So, and the other thing is like, is your company and, and is the funding that you have, are they willing to make that big spend commitment ahead before this big design or would they really prefer to have that break where they're going to, again, have that opportunity to reassess whether they want to move forward. And finally, you also want to make sure that you've done the speedy phase two, phase three trial. Is that really, make sure that it's not going to leave you with a very, um, you know, difficult PMC uh, requirement from the agency. So it's perfectly okay to evaluate it. Everybody should because you want to evaluate every possibility before you settle on a design, but the devil is in the detail. One other detail which is fairly technical, but hopefully most of you are aware of it is, let's say you do something like dropping an arm. 
you don't necessarily get to reclaim that alpha at the end of the trial. You still take kind of a hit. So your advantage is more in this like push that you're getting and you know you got your sites and you don't have that break. So it's all those kind of operational advantages. The statistical advantage is not all that much from if you're trying an inferentially seamless design. So that's the little bit that I'll say about that part of it. Um, the last, and then one other thing was on the Bayesian designs. Um, now again, uh, I fear again with, you know, don't conflate Bayesian with innovation. I mean, it's, it's a tool in a statistician's toolkit. They, they, you know, it's always good to evaluate it, but don't think that it applies everywhere kind of indiscriminately. There are reasons we use it. The best, the biggest advantage it offers is it allows you to kind of um, enhance your understanding and probability the way Natalia presented based on the accumulating information. So its biggest advantage is when you have some prior information, you can now update that probability of success. So it's very intuitive and helpful when you're trying to compute probability of success for a clinical development program. It's also helpful sometimes when you can augment your trial, maybe use a Bayesian prior for placebo. So now you get to use smaller placebo subjects and have a smaller trial with fewer actual subjects. That's another big bang for the world. Sometimes statisticians will use it because it's a technical tool that helps us get to the answer we want. It's not really doing much in another way, but there are things we have to do where we're like kind of maximizing likelihoods, we're trying to maximize functions, we have convergence issues. The Bayesian approach allows a nice, it's, it's a nice gimme to help us get the answer we want. So again, very useful approach. It's something that we have to use, but don't, you know, the devil's always in the detail. Make sure that it's being used the right way and for the right reasons. Um, and then we don't have a whole lot of time, so we're gonna end with uh, the common mistakes. Uh, Marsha and Natalia, what do you think are the common mistakes to avoid when, you know, that we wanna tell CMOs about? So clearly the big one, I think that everyone agrees on, is don't um, leave your conversations with the statistician to the last minute. Include them early, bring them along for the ride. If, if you wanna get the most that you can out of a statistician, in fact, you need to inform them. You need to, t you, they need to understand, they need to learn what it is they have, you know, medically they need to learn enough so that they can help you. If you leave them kind of off on the side they're not gonna be able to help you as much as you could, as they could, and you may feel like you're not getting the full value of statistics. You know, your statistician may not be able to make communications or communicate ideas enough to, to people because they're not educated enough about the medical field, the things that are outside their area of expertise. So I think that's a key, a key point, is if you wanna get the most out of your statistician and statistical support, you need to do your part in terms of informing them and educating them and telling them what you need. You know, I think people, statisticians sometimes struggle with trying to answer very broad questions if they don't understand everything and don't feel welcomed and, you know, part of the team. So that's, I think that's a big mistake and error is leaving people out until the last time, minute, even if you think you're doing them a favor. Sometimes people say, oh, I haven't figured it out yet. I don't wanna waste their time, but it's not a waste of time if um, they're learning and they therefore can provide a lot better support and fuller support to you. 
Yeah, I think I will, I will say it's very similar about partnership. Uh, someone before me said, if you use statistics like a drunken men using the lamppost for support instead of illumination, I think <laughs> this is a very wrong statistical kind of usage, right? If you just want statistician to support uh, what been already kind of thought, I think this is a, you lose a lot on, on value of a statistician. Uh, I think it's very helpful to create an environment where a statistician can challenge ask a question because then you really uh, have the best out of statistician. And uh, another point I also wanted to bring is, um, before joining Cytel, I was a client of Cytel. So uh, to me, I always would challenge statistician, give me more options, right? Give me several options for the trial design, give me pros and cons. Why do I go for that or that? Just because I've done that before for me, that, that's not good enough. <laughs> You always need to really choose, need to look at, at the space and know why you choose exactly that one and what are the benefits and what are the trade-offs. Okay. Jeff, anything you want to add? Oh, no, I just completely agree. It, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> should, it should absolutely be a partnership. And, and I think from the CMO perspective, um, sometimes we need to check our ego a little bit and partner with our, our teams and make sure that everybody's heard um, and has input and that it's a true partnership. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add, uh, you know, now for the past few years, I've been obviously in, in a, a functional leadership role. So certainly that's one ask I can think of, form a good relationship with the head of stats or whatever. So, you know, they are open to feedback. Uh, a common complaint I hear is communication. Statisticians are not good at communicating the big picture. They're giving you all these details, and it's, it's like the key message is lost. So, that's feedback you can provide. And you know we do try to train statisticians, teach them storytelling, but it's feed, that kind of feedback helps if you feel like you're not getting that from the statistician. Thank you, everyone. Do we have time for questions? Yes. Yes? Oh, okay, thank you. I'm Donna Scarrett. Mm -hmm. um, my question I'm really is uh, asking for your comment around uh, global trials where you get different statistical feedback from, you know, regulators in one region versus another. And um, if you generally suggest you try to, you know, sort of standardize your statistical approach across the study um, and, and work with each, um, each uh, regulatory group, or do you try your best to sort of come up with a, um, a global um, statistical um, section for the study? Uh, typically, it's been a global statistical section. I think the few markets that tend to be unique is Japan, of course, mm -hmm. which has always like a bridging study and such. Um, other than that, I mean, I've personally you get different kind of questions from them. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you'd, you'd have to change your statistical methodology targeting different mm -hmm. regulatory agencies. Uh, I don't know, Marsha, you wanna add more? Right, so I, I guess in my experience, typically, if you're conducting a global study, if you have different statistical approaches, you then have all kinds of problems in trying to actually um, do your analysis. I mean, there are times we've, we have provided perhaps additional analyses particular countries or regulators. We may do additional work and supplemental work. But in terms of the primary analysis for the study, unless you have one global way that you're going to do it, you can really have a lot of issues and problems.
I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2022 Chief Medical Officer Summit. The next Chief Medical Officer Summit will take place April 3rd and 4th, 2023 in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org.